the irony, though, like, <laughs> wow, it's almost as if this was designed for us. No joke. I almost feel like we're wow. being trolled, like did someone make this sort of just to like tease us. Yeah, they totally did. Well, dear listener, you will find out what we're talking about in about, uh, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes. Yeah. Uh, hello, I'm Kimberly Adams. Welcome to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us. I'm Kai Rizdal. Tuesday, today, a single topic on the podcast. It's China today. It's standing in the global economy. It's standing in global politics. What it means for everybody and everything on this planet, because honestly, that's what it affects that country does, truly. Although I guess we'll let Jennifer figure that out. Sorry, shh, I gave it away. Special guest. Special guest. Uh, it's Jennifer Pack, our China correspondent here at Marketplace, who knows all of these things and is regularly making personally me smart about things in China. And if you don't follow her on Instagram, you should be because she has all sorts of cool things. And I'll just get right to it. Welcome, Jennifer. Howdy. <laughs> Howdy. You're in L.A. this week. So yes. uh, you get the fun time of staring at Kai across the table. How's that going? You say, you say that like it's a terrible thing. Give me a break. Oh, is it because it's radio? I like it. Yeah, I think yeah. it's weird. Yeah. All right. Me so, Jennifer, gross. what is happening with China's economy right now? Well, it's going through a really turbulent period, basically. And that's from its own doing and also for geopolitical reasons, in a nutshell. Say more. Okay, so for geopolitical reasons, of course, it's just basically what everybody else is experiencing. You have the Ukraine war, so prices are going up. Um, a lot of uncertainty. You have the U.S.-China trade war. Hello, it's still, still going, going on. on. I know, I know. <laughs> still, still. still going on. So, I mean, I mean, the the manufacturers, exporters that we've been speaking to, they would say, okay, we have held on for a very long time. So the people who couldn't deal with the t- extra tariffs, they went away. Um, the people who could, they muddled along. They split some of the extra costs between the, well, ultimately the consumer Mm -hmm. and themselves. Um, But then came the Ukraine war. And then there were supply chain uh, issues. So everybody is reporting these astronomical fees for for, um, container ships and the wait time. Mm -hmm. So think about like Shanghai, for example, when uh, in normal times, for example, a factory wants to do uh, this Japanese manufacturer. They wanted to do a short turnaround. They wanted to sample. So they imported some um, of the raw materials from Japan and Europe to China. And they basically then from Shanghai moved it into inland to a factory for them to do a quick sample, move it back out to Japan so that they can inspect it. That normally took, uh, I would say, a few days. Mm -hmm. And suddenly because of the first few days of the lockdown in Shanghai, then suddenly that took two weeks. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that's and and because of the lockdown in the first week in Shanghai, they already missed the fall um season shipment. Whatever, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They missed it. And and they had no way of explaining to them. So there's just utter um uncertainty in the entire supply chain, in the whole economy. I mean if you talk to people now, the definition of success is uh surviving. It's Ooh, not revenue. That's not great. Yeah. Um, And so that's for geopolitical reasons. Domestically, of course, as I sort of touched on, is about the um, zero tolerance for COVID policy, uh, which means that at any point in time, whether you've caught COVID or somebody you know has caught COVID, or maybe they were in contact with somebody else who was also in touch with somebody else uh, who might have been in touch with a COVID patient, um, 
you know, they might get locked down. You're sealed in for 48 hours at a time. Um, and then it depends on your local officials. They'll go plus plus, you know, oh, five days of monitoring or seven days or, you know, two weeks. And it's just... Sorry, let me just jump in here super quick. We were sitting in my office yesterday chit-chatting, and you said you think zero COVID goes on for another year. At least. Wow. At least. Because you know what's happening now? After the Shanghai and Xi'an lockdown, which were quite brutal in that, the the scale and the amount of um, disruption to the internal logistics mm-hmm. um, in terms of, like, say, basic necessities, food. Sure. Um, they're replicating that everywhere. Look what happened in Sanya. They did the exact same thing. Um, they're doing that in Tibet. They're doing that in Xinjiang. So every place is learning from, unfortunately, from Shanghai. And it's not going to get any better because even though you're coming out, nobody is looking normal. Um, so in all of the mega cities, uh, Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, Shenzhen, uh, Hangzhou as well, which is the high tech hub for Alibaba, um, everybody has to test regularly. Best case scenario, every second day. In Shenzhen for a while, it was 24 hours. That meant that they were testing twice a day, 5 a.m. in the morning, one family said, and then at like uh, midnight just so that they can. Well, it's like a video game. It's like you can extend your life (laughs) and move about the city, you know, go take public transport, go into office buildings, go into the supermarket, which is why I myself have not done any of that since the lockdown Mm -hmm. uh, officially sort of lifted in June. I've not walked into any shop. I have not gone into any supermarket, no shopping mall. I just don't want to be traced and suddenly get caught in a lockdown. So, you know, clearly that's where the consumer sentiment is coming from. Everyone's just, you know, hanging on. But, I mean, Jennifer, what you're talking about here, you know, there's the geopolitical stuff that is serious and a major effect on the Chinese economy. And I would also imagine sort of just how people are feeling. But then layer on top of that, the zero COVID policy, which, you know, you've definitely shared has been exhausting and difficult and frustrating. And I have to imagine the rest of the people in the country are feeling that way. Is Beijing worried about this and sort of how much strain the economy can take and the Chinese people can take? Um, They definitely are worried, but how worried is the question and how much pain can they take? So let's go back to the beginning of why they started the zero tolerance for COVID policy. It it started because they said they wanted to save lives. They saw what was happening in the U.S. as well. And now it's emboldened them that they said, well, we can't. The term they're using is lie flat, tangping, which is we can't just do nothing. Because on the best days, the best of days, if I walk into a hospital in Shanghai, it is super overcrowded. It's chaotic Mm. on the best of days. So can you imagine even a very tiny percentage of people um, on COVID, like, for example, in the early days who would require respirators? I mean, it would just completely uh, collapse the whole system. Add to that that the medical system, the best resources are all located in Beijing and Shanghai, which is why you often see queues of people from all Mm. over the country waiting out there. What's going to happen to the rest of the country if suddenly you let it rip through? Okay, now we come to Omicron, okay? And there's a a fair percentage of people who are vaccinated. Unfortunately, not the elderly people. Um, Mm. So in the U.S., weirdly enough, in the U.S. uh, and in the Western world, everybody vaccinated the most vulnerable population first, meaning the elderly. In China, they went the opposite. They vaccinated all of the young people first. So they didn't force them, but your building or maybe your um, work 
said, okay, well, you have to, a certain percentage of people have to get vaccinated. So indirectly, people were forced to vaccinate or pressured into it. So actually, most of the young people are vaccinated. Now it's just left the people who are uh, aged over 60, um, and more importantly, the people over the age of 80. Um, Especially in Shanghai, it's very... There's a massive age population there. They're the ones who are not taking it. And they're the most rebellious ones. And, you know, they can't they can't force them. And part of it is, you know, because they had controlled COVID so well beforehand, elderly people are saying, okay, well, chances of me catching COVID, not so high. Chances of me having an adverse uh, reaction to this vaccine that I don't know what is in it, um, much higher. And the question then, of course, becomes... Well, who's going to pay for it? And medical bills are really expensive. So that's that's sort of the distrust. It's interesting that for some reason, the, the Chinese Communist Party is much more comfortable in locking people into their homes, you know, caging them with barbed wire and making them look feel like they're animals trapped inside, you know, cut off the food supply, but not OK to force people to vaccinate oh, the elderly. So, I mean, back to your question about economic pain. Yeah, there there is going to be a, a tipping point. Um, it doesn't seem as if it's happened yet. Hmm. Um, all right. So can we get away from COVID for a minute? We were talking also in my office yesterday about, about how American news consumers view and feel about China. So let me ask you the flip question. Walking down uh, uh, the street in Shanghai or Beijing, assuming you can get out and talk to somebody, what's the general impression of the United States over there right now? Um, either they don't know um, or there is a narrative being pushed by the Communist Party that America is in decline. This started probably um, since the 2008 financial crisis hmm. when officials in China thought maybe all of the reforms we're doing should not be completely aligned and following the path of the U.S. Uh, in terms of the financial mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. system. And they thought, well, well, let's go our own way. And if you look at 2008, there was a massive stimulus, which mm-hmm. sort of contributed to the current day problems. But you certainly didn't see a lot of the problems that happened in the U.S. And so I remember <laughs> it was almost quite ridiculous, but it had rained in Beijing. And I remember um, there were these trees where I don't know what you call it, but they were like, you know, planted on the sidewalk. Mm-hmm. But there's mm-hmm. this little square around of, of, it. Of dirt and earth around them. <clears throat> right. OK, so it accumulates mm-hmm. some water. There were eight guys, six guys fishing out the water, like with shovels, yeah. and like two guys like on watch. And I thought, wow, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's job creation. That's dig, digging holes, <laughs> job creation, right? That's job. exactly right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so that's wow. sort of like what they did. And then if you look at <clears throat> during this wow. pandemic, Shanghai went through a crazy uh, facelift. So mm. people along the Suzhou Creek uh, facing the Bund, you know, a very iconic skyline there, uh, along the street, every single building got a new fresh coat mm-hmm. of paint, mm-hmm. my building included, because we're in the former French concession, um, and mm. roads were being uh, fixed. Wow. And so it's kind of like make work. So when you start hearing the drills, you kind of know, okay, well, you know, some activity is going on. Um, that hasn't, that's starting to pick up again. I think Shanghai is going to do that again. But, but in general, I would say say that Chinese people have been hearing more. Um, every time there have have been complaints about the zero COVID policy, the Chinese government then counters and says one million people or one plus million people died in the U.S. Yeah. Is this what you want? And, wow. and, and that's the fact that you can't get away. It's true, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and so people yeah. would assume for a very long time that COVID was really bad. Um, but gradually, of course, people 
you know, they have relatives, people who are traveling to the U.S. They could see that you can move freely around. Mm. And there are people who are questioning. It's like, well, I mean, Omicron, it's not that it's not that um, bad. Why why can't we? But um, and the other impression, by the way, of the U.S. is that people in business, even if they deal with the U.S., their uh, overriding thinking is that the origins of this tension between the yep. two countries is really because America is on the decline and it cannot take the fact that China is on the rise. China's on the rise. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. But do you find that to be true based on what you're seeing? And, you, you know, you just spent all this time talking about these sort of headwinds of the Chinese economy. But do you still right. see China on track to overtake the U.S. as the top economic power in the world, which has been forecasted for a long time? And I guess does it matter if they do? I think it depends on what metric you're looking at. The majority of the country still have not owned their first car yet. Okay. Wow. I mean, in the cities, yes, you hear GM, you hear Volkswagen, you hear Ford. They always talk about China's the biggest market. It is, but it's in the mega cities of like 20 plus million or close to 20 million people. Okay. But there are still people, including our news assistant, Charles Zhang. His family has not had their first car yet. I'm just saying family, not him personally. Okay. So that's an indication that there's still a long ways to go. Okay, so it would keep that in perspective. There is a group of people, especially in the cities, who were able to accumulate wealth, mostly through property, um, and then was able to kind of live a lifestyle that I think we can find comparable, um, if not even more expensive in the West. So, so one last thing, and then let you go, we'll let you go because honestly, we could go all day on we this. We could talk forever. But, yeah, but but you know, one of the one of the things before the pandemic, the the secret handshake in China obviously was, listen, we will let you get rich. We will have a capitalist economy provided you surrender your political rights. And that kept the government happy. It kept the people happy. And that was that was kind of the modus operandi. Still true, even now, two and a half years into a pandemic where where people have been shut in their homes for days and days and days and weeks and months. That's an interesting question. Um, I don't have a definitive answer. Certainly at this point in time, it doesn't feel so. And the people who, you know, especially small business owners who mm-hmm. basically have depleted their life savings over the last three years um, to try to keep mm-hmm. their business alive, uh, don't think so. But um, I would say that right now there's no alternative to the Communist Party. So, yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. so 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 that's one. The second thing is that there is still um, a tacit trust of the government to, I guess, look out for their welfare. Wow. Um, so if you look at, for example, housing, we've been talking about uh, mortgage boycotts, remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, okay. We, we, we filed for us on okay, that. Okay, yeah. but do you know why they are boycotting and not defaulting, though? In the U.S., you would have just defaulted, right? right I have right. no money. You, you do a little you know, jingle mail, right? You leave your keys right. and you take okay. off, right? They are mm-hmm. calling, they're threatening a boycott because they want the government to step in. And there is still this, in so many investments um, and in, in so many sectors, there is a tacit agreement or like an understanding from the public that if things really go awry, the government's going to step mm. in and right the wrong, right the ship because they know, they know that the government is very worried about stability. And so if they make some noise, rattle the cages, mm. the officials are going to step in. That used to always be true. 
the party now is starting to try to train people to think differently. There are risks when it comes to investments, even when you buy a home. And so they're trying to, no, I wouldn't say it's breaking it, but it's right, sort of right, trying to right. train them. <laughs> Which I love because they're trying to do it after, what, 75, 80 years of the Chinese Communist Party being it's in charge tough. and taking care of everything. It's tough. Jennifer Pack is our correspondent in Shanghai. She is uh, uh, here with us today uh, on, on Happy Circumstance. It's really good to have you in. Thanks, Thanks for having me. Thanks, Talk guys. That was fun, Jennifer. Jennifer right. knows just so many things. I know, right? It's crazy. <laughs> she does. She does. Did it without notes, too. She brought a bunch of notes and didn't look at them once. Just saying. Just saying. because <laughs> she's making us smarter. That's right. Uh, That's right. Let us know what you all think. And if you have questions for Jennifer, I imagine we can shunt them her way as well. Uh, our number is 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UV-SMART. You can also send us a voice memo at makemesmartatmarketplace.org. And we will be right back. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org academy. News fixes. What you got, Kai? So I got two. One's just a quickie to let everybody know that supply chain problems are not over. Ford Motor Company, that of the Big Blue Oval, uh, <laughs> said yesterday that supply chain problems are going to cause it a billion dollars in extra costs. Now, I should say that Ford says it's still going to be able to make all its deliveries on time, that it's working uh, with its suppliers, but it's just going to cost them a boatload more money. And that's kind of a big problem when you're a company as big as Ford, right? I mean, stock is down 11% today as I walked into the studio. And I just think everybody needs to understand that that um, <laughs> the pandemic's not over, despite what the president says. Sorry. Sorry. Got to get that dig in again. Yes. And, and for people who've missed this during an interview on 60 Minutes, the president said the pandemic is over, which is not. Literally, literally he said has, the pandemic's over. Literally. He used yes, those words. Those words. And his team has been like backpedaling Ugh. as quickly as they possibly can Killing on me. that because it is not over. Hundreds of people are still dying per day. Um I imagine the sentiment he was getting yeah, at yeah, for sure, for sure. was this idea but... that the sort of severity and all-encompassing nature of the response to COVID is waning. Right. Um, and whether I... or not that should be the case is um, 
something that's that's debatable. You're, but, you're exactly right. But when you're the president of the United know. States, you don't get to say, oh, you know what I meant. Come on. Right. Yeah. No, you know, you don't get to do that. All right. So that's so that's I mean, my one. Actually, no. But we've talked about this before about is what the president can say, you know, changed forever because of Trump. We talked about this right after oh, yeah. uh, Biden got yeah. elected because yeah. yep. we had this all this time of Trump saying yep. whatever he wanted yep. and people being like, and eh, well, it's just Trump talking, but right. still the president of the United States talking. Have we just sort of, you know. No, I don't. I, I, no return on that. I, maybe I'm I'm self-serving in my memory of this, but I remember being uh, not at all forgiving of Mr. Trump when he would say ridiculous things, and oh, people would weren't. say, "Oh, no, that's no, just no, him." No, no, no. All right, okay, exactly. Just, not you me, specifically, yeah. Yeah, but no, sort of the narrative. Right. right. Uh, okay. Here's my other one. It's it's a little dorky, but but bear with me because welcome to my podcast. Um, mm-hmm. The number of the day today, as I walked into the studio, is three point five four nine percent. That's the yield on the ten-year Treasury note as of you know ten o'clock this morning, Los Angeles time on Tuesday. Um, it's the highest it's been uh, in, I think, now 12 years. For some context, the government could borrow money at um, half a percent a mere two years ago. It was 0.5% for 10 years. Today, the government wants to borrow. It's got to pay 3.6%. And look, this is what's supposed to be happening as the Federal Reserve raises interest rates, right? But this is going to roll out into mortgage rates, into car loans, into credit cards. And oh, by the way, the $30 trillion that the United States government and the people thereof owe as well in the national debt. So just bonds and mortgages, I'm telling you. It's a big deal. Tightening financial conditions. Sorry, that was geeky, but everybody needs to pay attention to that. Well, I mean, but it's it's the world that we're living in. Yeah, yeah. And it's sort of yet another economy where if you have money and you can put it in savings, not savings accounts since they're not really paying anything, but if you have money and you can put it in like an I-bond or something like right. that or right. something that is earning interest that is actually based on rising interest rates, you're in great shape. But if you're on the other side of the economy where you're paying those interest rates, not so good for you. Exactly. Um, exactly. So I also have two. Uh, first, a check-in on Hurricane Fiona, which is still going, still causing so much damage. I was looking, it said it dropped 30 inches of rain in some parts of yeah, Puerto Rico. Yeah. And, like, and like less than and, a day, right? I mean, yeah. that's like two and a half feet of water falling from the sky. Yeah, and now it's, um, you know, going through, um, you know, Turks and Caicos and... It's threatening the Bahamas. It already has been through the Dominican Republic. And, you know, the damage in Puerto Rico is awful. And so a lot of these places have, you know, not even the same kind of infrastructure that Puerto Rico does. And it's going to be a lot of suffering. Um, And this is the first storm of the year. And I remember earlier we were talking about how it got a late start to the Mm -hmm. season. But, Mm -hmm. wow, it certainly came back uh, with a vengeance. So... Hopefully, uh, you know, not as many people are injured or hurt, but we've already got a couple deaths related to that. Um, My other one is a check-in on another story that we talked about uh, last week, I guess, that a Texas sheriff has now opened an investigation into those flights of Venezuelan migrants that were sent by private plane from San Antonio to Martha's Vineyard by Ron DeSantis. Uh, When that happened, a lot of people were wondering if 
this would count as human trafficking. You among them, Kai. It's like, you know, it would be illegal for most of us to do that. And especially because several of the folks uh, on those trips, uh, those trips said that they were told they were going someplace else. And that there would be resources and opportunities waiting for them. And so there is now an investigation. I should say that the sheriff in Texas Mm -hmm. who is launching this investigation does happen to be an elected Democrat. Uh, But it will be very fascinating to see if there are any charges that actually stick here. And there's a really interesting piece in Texas Monthly looking at sort of the back and forth between Texas Governor Greg Abbott's efforts about busing migrants and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's efforts to also kind of send migrants from elsewhere. But the sort of escalating cruelty of this for the purposes of political statements and, and, and political theater. So... Very thoughtful uh, piece there. So. Yeah, totally. All right, that's the news. Uh, uh, Yeah, let's do the mailbag. Sorry, like I didn't know Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow-up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things. Okay, some of you might have noticed that recently we've... uh, well, Bridget has bleeped <laughs> Kai a few times here and there. Uh, well, we got this email from listener Alex. According to a recent article by Word Tips, people on Twitter named Kai are the most profane on the platform. Bridget should therefore consider cutting Mr. Rizdal some slack for his occasional potty mouth since it is clearly the result of the societal, cultural, and perhaps even economical pressures placed on the Kais of this world that the rest of us cannot begin to fathom. It's hard being me, man. (laughs) How about it's crazy? It's crazy. But here's the flip side of that thing, right? So Kais swear the most. Who swears the least? Kimberly's, you goody two shoes. It's amazing. Like we clicked on this link, oh, and I'm looking man. at this chart. And so this uh, website, which I know nothing about, but it entertained me. It breaks down what's the most popular swear word in each state, uh, what day of the week people swear the most. It's Tuesday. Events that trigger a lot of swearing online. But yeah, top ten ten names in America that swear the most and the least. Top on the what they say. The top 10 sweariest names, which counts the tweets per 1,000 with swearing, Kai. Top 10 least sweariest names, Kimberly. Kai's have about 64 swear words per 1,000 tweets. Kimberly's apparently have nine swear words, nine tweets with swear words per 1,000 tweets. And I'm wondering how much of this is you, Kai? Well, uh, no small part of it, right? No small part of it is me. Like, there's not all that many Kai's. <laughs> oh, you mean like the and overall statistic is me? Yeah, oh, like maybe, how maybe. much are you skewing the numbers? I don't. Uh, that's a that's a fair. You I tweet don't know. a lot. That's fair. That's fair. I don't know. Oh man! All right, let's move along, shall we? Good <laughs> grief! All right, we talked about a possible beer shortage. Uh, not the uh, the other day, I guess. Yesterday was it yesterday? yesterday. All right, Matt yes. called in with a potential solution. 
Hi, Kimberly and Kai. I can't believe that I'm even saying this and I'm grossing myself out as I do. But if they're able to make beer, they just can't put fizz into it. Couldn't they just sell it as like unfizzed beer for all these people who like, I don't know, bought soda streams in the early aughts and like have them collecting dust in their basements or whatever? Because like, isn't that just what it does? I don't know. I'm not a scientist. I'm just thinking maybe this is actually like a golden market opportunity. (laughs) I I mean, maybe (laughs) it sounds logical on its face. Is that how beer works? No, the way beer works is that the fermentation process and the process of brewing lead to the carbonation, lead to the, the bubbles in the beer, as opposed to soda, where the carbon dioxide is added to the mix. So then why does the CO2 shortage even matter for beer? I don't know. If it's part of the fermentation process Uh, to begin with. Maybe there's some, uh, uh, oh God, here's here's a word, you ready? Maybe there's a Cicerone out there who can explain it to me. Cicerone is like a sommelier except for beer. Um, Who can explain it to us? Yeah, somebody out there make us smart on Uh, beer. Maybe we need a deep dive on beer. Maybe. Because I don't know much about it. And I know it's very important to you, so. Yes, I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, Okay. Before we go, we're going to leave you with this week's answer to the Make Me Smart question, which is, what is something you thought you knew but later found out you were wrong about? This is Tamara from Colorado. I thought that utilities entirely made their money off of the commodities that they sell, whether it be electricity or water or Internet or natural gas. And I recently found employment at a wonderful utility here in Colorado and found out that I was completely wrong. Utilities actually Hmm. just make their money off of the infrastructure that they put into or on top of the ground. Anyway, love the show. Thanks for making me smart. Bye. So, so we should explain this a little bit, right? So, so the, the products that utilities provide, generally speaking, are provided at cost to consumers. But what their profit comes from is the infrastructure, whether it's the wires, the pipes, or whatever, so that when they bill, they can bill to recoup the costs plus profit of the infrastructure. Uh, and the water and all that jazz is a small portion of the equation. So that's, that's how that works out. So what, they're just like renting to us use of these... You know, poles and things? In essence, right? In essence. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that either. There you go. Thanks. Uh, That's why we call this podcast Make Me Smart, people. And you can send us your answers to the Make Me Smart question via voice memo to our email at makemesmartatmarketplace.org or leave us just a plain old message, 508-827-6278, 508-U-B-SMART. Make Me Smart is directed and produced by Marissa Cabrera. Our intern is Olivia Zhao. Ellen Rolfes writes our newsletter. Today's program is engineered by Jake Cherry and Mingxin Tiguan. He's going to mix it down later. Ben Talladay and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. The senior producer is Bridget Bodner. Donna Tam is the director of On Demand. And Francesca Levy is the executive director of Digital. Marketplace's vice president and general manager is Neil Scarborough. I think, I wonder if there's just... Kimberly is such a common name. Well, I wonder right, that could be the other part of it, right? If I am disproportionately represented in the swearers, the, the sheer I number of Kimberleys, w- right, right. Yeah, not that I swear online much. Yeah, no, I... Ever. Actually, yeah. ever.
Yeah, well, I do think in it's real just life, much though. more, much more uh, 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 decorous than I am, shall we say. Or much more aware of the response yeah. that I will get if I swear online versus the response that you'll get if I swear, right. if you swear online. Right. <laughs> we all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.